You're listening to Now I've Heard Everything, interviews from the 80s, 90s, and 2000s with voices from the past. My mother actually said, you know, your father and I, this was our wish that you have American circumstances and Chinese character. She didn't say to me the second line, which how could we know these two things did not mix. But the thing she said to me all her life, that was what I think she meant. Author Amy Tan. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. Well, this Sunday is Mother's Day. So today, my conversation with an author who called upon her own mother's life experiences to form the basis of a novel that became one of America's best-loved books of the late 20th century. Amy Tan's parents emigrated to the U.S. from China, bringing with them their own personal histories, of course, but also centuries of Chinese wisdom and memory. It was against that backdrop that Amy Tan wrote her breakout 1989 bestseller, The Joy Luck Club. And as you'll hear in a few minutes, Amy Tan's writing tapped into some kind of consciousness that even her own mother was startled by. Now, the first of several times that I interviewed Amy Tan was in 1990, right after the paperback edition of The Joy Luck Club had been published, and she was still reveling in its success. So here now, from 1990, author Amy Tan. Are you surprised at all by the overwhelming success that your book has had? Constantly surprised. I, it's been over a year since it came out in hardback, and I still am amazed. I, I sometimes wake up and think it's all a dream, that I dreamed this up, you know. And, and, and I also feel at times as though it's a nightmare. I wake up and I think, thank God that was just a dream, and I'm looking around, and I say, yes, I'm still living in my same house, and nothing's changed. Um, and the nightmare part is is the pressure and the expectations. I was just going to say, I'm uh, sure you've seen the publicity this week with Scott Turow's new book. Everybody's expecting another blockbuster, presumed that's innocent, right. yeah. and it may turn out to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tom Clancy's mm-hmm. second was a was a bestseller, and all his other ones have been since. But but is there is there something hanging over your head now that's saying, Amy Tan, you darn well better come up with a great second book? Yeah. Well, you know, right from the beginning, I had a woman say to me in front of seven hundred people at a luncheon, "How does it feel to have written your best book first? And I felt like saying, "Well, I'm not dead yet. Um, <laughs> how do we know these things?" But you know, there is an assumption that you could never top something like this. And and I always have to look at it in terms of my criterion for success is not that I will sell more or that I will, I, I don't know, capture more readers or something. It has to come from something else and feeling that I have written a better book for myself because I discovered something new and I felt that I creatively wrote something different that was more exciting to me than the previous book. I think that every new book always feels different, like like a child in some way. But once you finish the book, the Joy Luck, you know, when I finished writing The Joy Luck Club, it was over for me. It was emotionally over for me. And um, and the next book is the one that I'm in love with. And so to, to talk about the old book, it, it sometimes you feel like you're being uh, committing adultery of some kind or, you know, being unfaithful in a way. Do you know what I, what I, what, what, what I was happy about? Was that with with the exception of the of the opening of the book, no one died. Yeah. I mean, I, I I was half anticipating 
who else is going to die before uh-huh. the end of this book? Uh-huh. And I'm so pleased that no one died. Uh-huh. Actually, there is a little boy who dies oh, that's, in that's, this story. Yeah, yes, yeah. yes, he dies. Um, there, there are some. The, n- none of the present characters die. Ex- is, yeah, is what exactly. happens. Yes, that is the most sad thing. And um, for the present characters who tell the story. Um, my mother actually is still alive, and so that's the wonderful thing about fiction. You can imagine something, uh, you know, that might have been, but you're glad that it's it's not. Now, are the you case. tired by now of people asking you if this is your story? Yeah. Well, I think I've been. I, I. It's an important question. I keep asking myself, what is autobiography? I mean, what what is the nature of autobiography and its relationship to fiction? And um, that after you say things enough times, uh, you know, you can make it true in a, in a way. This book is autobiographical in the sense that the emotions are true. And the questions that I asked myself in writing the book are true. But the details are not strictly uh, the details from my life. There's enough things, though, to, to, I suppose you could call it autobiographical because my mother also left behind daughters in China. I met my sisters for the first time in China in 1987. I was a, a copywriter, just like June. Um, my mother wanted me to be a concert pianist, and I had to take these piano lessons, and I had a disastrous piano recital. But I didn't play chess, and I didn't live in Chinatown. Um, and I didn't lose a brother who, who drowned in an ocean, but I lost a father and a brother who died both of brain tumors. So you find these similarities there, and you, and you have to say, well, at what point is it autobiography, and, and uh, at what point does it become fiction or imagination? I thought that uh, passage about the piano lessons rang a little bit true, too true to be uh, made up. You mean the horrors of it? <laughs> yeah. All of a sudden, find your, finding yourself playing the, the the piece off the wrong track, and uh, that that actually did happen to me. For, for anyone yeah. who suffered in, uh, up on stage yeah. in front of an audience, yeah. that's that yeah. you you can't make something like that up. Yeah. But when you <laughs> There was a passage in here which I I think I even remembered the page number because I wanted to ask you about it because you are, you know how every now and then you'll have there'll be a phrase in a book that will just make you you'll literally have to put the book down and just think about it for a minute mm. you have because it hits you so profoundly mm. and the phrase is on page two eighty nine in the paperback edition anyway I don't know if the page numbers match in the hardcover um, it's Lindo Jong. Uh, and she's saying, I wanted my children to have the best combination, American circumstances and Chinese character. How could I know these two things do not mix? And I tell you, literally, I had to, at that point, put the book down and stop and think about that. That's, that, that's a very profound concept. I, my mother actually uh, said to me at one time, she said, you know, your father and I, this was our wish that you have American circumstances and Chinese character. And she didn't say to me the second line, which how could we know these two things did not mix. But the thing she said to me all her life, that was what I think she meant, um, a feeling throughout life that at times these moments when I would call her bad names <laughs> or tell her that I didn't think that her advice was had any meaning to my life in America. Um, I think that was the subtext of what her complaints were. And so as I was writing these, all, all, 
oftentimes when I was writing, I would, I would have a line, something that I remembered, a little echo, you know, in my ear. And then all of a sudden, the words that I didn't hear, that I think that my mother wanted to say to me, would come through. And it was this, if it would write itself, and I would finally understand what her frustrations were as a mother. Is writing almost like hypnosis where you know how in hypnosis they can take you back and you can remember things that you that your conscious doesn't even remember but as soon as you go under you can remember yeah, them subconsciously yeah. is writing the same kind of experience I think it is in a way that um, you have things in your subconscious that you don't even know about that you're not aware of and when you take a fictional character they have the liberty of going into onto different paths that you wouldn't dare go on if you were writing autobiography um, and suddenly they take you down this path that seems very familiar and you don't know why. And they get to a point and they bring out something that's oftentimes very embarrassing or shameful. And, um, and all of a sudden you recognize where you are. And it is something from memory and it's combined with imagination. And it seems like those two elements are the ways in which we come to some kind of truth in our life. After this short break, the incredible things that came out while Amy Tan was writing. Now back to my 1990 interview with Amy Tan. It was always astonishing to me when I was writing these things that um, I wouldn't know where the story was going. I wouldn't know the endings. There's a story called The Moon Lady, and I knew that she... In the beginning, uh, you know, my, my two-sentence um, idea for that story is a girl goes and watches a shadow play and in seeing this play discovers something about herself. That's all I knew about the story. And it began, I wrote that story in one day. It began, you know, early in the morning on a very hot day and ends in, in the evening when she asks the moon lady for her secret wish. And I kept saying to myself, what is her wish? What is her wish? And I got to the end of it, and she bursts out. She's been lost. She fell in the lake. And she 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 goes up to the moon lady and says, this is my secret wish. And all of a sudden, as if my fingers were writing by themselves, not connected to my mind, they write. And that's when the moon lady became a man. And I thought to myself, you know, I, I sat back. It is... Like what you said, I put the, my, I stopped writing and I said, my God, that poor girl, that poor girl. And what was her wish? And it, my fingers started writing again. I wished to be found. I mean, and here was a woman who'd been lost all her life and she finally remembered the wish again. She had blocked it in her mind. And together in writing this story, we both remembered what the wish was. Um, and in some sense, you know, when my mother read that story, she said, I know that never happened to me. I didn't live there. I didn't fall in a lake. I didn't uh, ask a moon lady for a wish. But she said, I feel of all the stories, I was that little girl. This is a story about me. And all my life, I've been standing still. And it was a chill that ran through me because the original title for that story had been Standing Still. Um that's the kind of truth you get to with fiction. The, the details, it doesn't matter at some point. The emotions become so true to something by, by writing fiction and writing through your imagination. Now, artistically, that goes way beyond somebody who's got a contract that says they have to write a book. So they sit down <laughs> at the typewriter and they say, okay, what do I call this? That's 
one kind of writing, and we've all read books like that. Mm-hmm. But then there's another kind of book that does, it comes from someplace much, much different than, than the source of a book that you write just because yeah. someone tells you you have to yeah. write one. Yeah. That's when you have to strip away all those expectations and the idea of what's on the contract and everything and write, um, really to, to try and understand something or, or to even find the right question to at, ask yourself. Um, I wrote another story in here that, um, it's called uh, Magpies, and it's about a woman who is a widow, and she later becomes the third concubine of a rich man. And in the end, after she has a son and it's given away to another wife, she wants her daughter to know that there are, she should make choices in life, that she doesn't have to accept the fate given to her. And she does this in a very dramatic way by actually taking opium and killing herself. So her daughter will have a stronger spirit to fight and not let this happen to her. Um, I was told a story about my grandmother when I was young in which she was a widow and then later she became the first wife of a very rich man and that she died in 1926 accidentally. Um, that she had taken opium, she had taken too much of it. Um, I thought about, and I wanted to write about this. I never knew my grandmother, of course, since she died in 1926, but I wanted to know her in this way. And I thought, wait a minute, this doesn't ring true to me, that she would have killed herself accidentally. So I said to myself, if she was anything like me, anything like my mother, um, then I have to write a different story. And I wrote a story in which... Those are the details of the story. My mother read that story and she said, how did you know your grandmother was a third concubine? And she now believes that the story that I wrote is the absolute true story, that those were the emotions of her mother. She was the little girl watching her mother die as she was in the throes of this poisoning. Um, unfortunate thing is that now my mother thinks that I get all my stories by channeling them from people on the other side. <laughs> Um, and I don't think that that's exactly how I get the stories, but I do sometimes wonder, you know, there is something, you call it a muse, or you call it uh, the the cosmic unconscious, or you call it uh, inspiration. I don't know what it is, memory and imagination. I don't know sometimes where these stories come from, and that's what's so remarkable there's there's a feeling that's almost religious when you get something and you don't know where it comes from but all you say is thank god oh thank you whoever you are who gave me this story um because it's 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 a joy to me to discover something that i didn't know was there do you suppose that one reason for the popularity of your book, and if you go back a few years to Roots, uh, Alex Haley, is is that we we want some connection with our past, and and it, when you show us two, oh, yes. three, four generations back, and you could show us a history, uh, some bedrock upon which your mm-hmm. life is 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 based, that it gives us a sense of security and satisfaction. I think it gives us those things, the security and satisfaction, but it also gives us a sense of identity, our own identity. I, for example, never felt connected to American history. My history began in 1952 when I was born, and I never co- connected with... Um, 
the Civil War or the Pilgrims, because my ancestors weren't in this country at that time. That's what I meant when I, you know, in, in the book I said, when my feet touched China, I became Chinese. It's as though there's something genetic running through my blood that came from my ancestors, generations and generations who lived in China. And there is something familiar, and I think it has to do with history and past. The past has really shaped who we are in ways that we don't know about it. And it's like this story of the concubine, the third concubine, who was my grandmother, that her determination um, somehow is is in my mother and it's in me. Uh, this idea that we have to determine our own lives, not let fate take over. It's such a strong element. And I also see it in my sisters who were not uh, my sister, who my mother had to leave behind when she was just a baby, and she has that in her blood. She has the same determination. She also has the same sense of humor, and and that's when you you have to think. You know, it, it is in your blood. It's in your bones. You know, your mother is in your bones. Amy Tan is seventy-one now, and she is frequently listed as one of the most important and influential authors of her time. And you can get your own copy of The Joy Luck Club by simply clicking on the link in our show notes or by going to our website, heardeverything.com. And that's where you'll also find my interview with a woman whose mother was a very big influence in her life, as well as the nation's, my 1986 interview with Julie Nixon Eisenhower. I've had so many people who have come up to me and said, I really didn't like your father very much, but your mother, what a lady. And my interview with a mom whose daughter is more famous than she, but she's okay with that. My 1999 conversation with Ellen's mom, Betty DeGeneres. I worried about her well-being. I worried that she wouldn't have a man to take care of her. And I think she has taken care of herself rather well. And of course, we post new episodes of Now I've Heard Everything here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And you can find us on all major podcast platforms. I do hope you'll subscribe today if you haven't already. And would you do me a favor? If you like today's episode... Would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? Thank you. I appreciate that. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, my conversation with one of America's most famous trial lawyers about a client he never actually represented, but he knows a bit about, my 1997 interview with defense attorney Jerry Spence. I never interviewed O.J. only thing I did is I talked with him on the telephone. He said he didn't do it, and I didn't ask him that. He just told me he didn't do it. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. 